moment. Let's recognize this morning that we stand in the presence of a holy God. We recognize this morning that we're only able to stand because of the finished work of Jesus in whom we trust. Lord, thank you that you are holy God, a mighty God. Invite souls like me, souls like us, into relationship with you. Lord, you are worthy of our praise. We want you to know we worship you, we adore you. We delight in you this morning. Lord, I pray as we open up your word this morning, would you remind us of who we are because of Christ Jesus? Lord, we worship you, we praise you in his name. Amen. Please do be seated. When... uh, Esther is uh, back from Uganda. Um, She is going to need some help with transport. Um, This is a message to any of you who might have more than one car in your household. Uh, If one of them's a Ferrari, um, that would be great. Sell it, and can I encourage you to give the money to the Build Project. If you happen to have any other car, um, Esther would be so grateful if you might be able to consider um, loaning it to her and even insuring her on it for the duration of her stay, which is a couple of weeks. Just to help her get around, um, many of us will know that Esther's grandma uh, is not too well at the moment, so Esther will want to go over to kind of New Milton, Ashley direction uh, to make some visits. So if that is you this morning, can I encourage you just to have a chat with me and and let me know? That would be so incredibly helpful if we can help Esther in that way. Well, I make reference to selling Ferraris in part because we have got a build project coming up, and a quick reminder to you that in two weeks' time, Uh, When Esther joins us, we are actually going to be having our our gift day and our pledge day. A couple of weeks for us to really seriously consider thinking about how God might be stirring us to give. And I don't want to labor the point this morning. I'll do that next weekend. Um, But I do just want to encourage you, if you haven't already read it, to pick up our uh, our booklet, our leaflet. Um, I was talking to to my brother about this the other day, and um, I said, can you pass me that leaflet? And he said, brochure. Some of you got it, most of you didn't. Um, Anyway, in your brochure, brochure, uh, have a look at page uh, 23. I particularly want to commend that to you. Uh, Do you know the government delight in increasing our giving by giving us 25% or more, depending on which tax bracket you're in? Can I encourage you to read that page particularly, because we can actually increase our gifts by 25% and make our life so much easier on the 1st of October by enabling the government to help us. That page gives all sorts of assurances about how we'll protect you if you're worried about um, spending or gifting, gifting more tax back than you've paid, if that makes sense. But read that page, and you'll see how our finance team are committed to helping you with that, so you won't get yourself into any trouble uh, at all. Depending on the response of our gift day on the 1st of October, we're really hopeful that we might be able to start thinking about building our new building in the spring as soon as next year, uh, which really focuses the mind, uh, doesn't it? Anyway, enough said on all that. Well, if you were here with us uh, last weekend, uh, you'll have heard Kay brilliantly explain all that Paul is saying after the therefore, which comes at the very, very beginning of Romans chapter 8 in verse 1. It says, therefore... Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
The therefore at the beginning of chapter 8 comes in response to all that Paul has already been saying in Romans chapter 7 in what I described a couple of Sundays ago of being the do-do problem of our sin. The good I do not want to do, I do do, but the, or I don't do, but the evil I don't want to do, I do do. The do-do problem. Now, Kay shared with us uh, from verses 1 to 11 last weekend of Romans chapter 8 that God has eternally dealt with the do-do problem, um, reminding us of the transformative power and work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We learned last weekend that through faith in Jesus and because of the indwelling presence of God's Spirit, who we receive the minute we come to faith in Christ, we can actually be set free of the death-dealing, life-sucking, grave-tending law of the sin. And we remember from last weekend, we are declared not guilty, even though, as Paul reminded us in Romans chapter 7, through the gritted teeth of frustration, sin is still a constant irritant to us, but sin is dealt with eternally nonetheless. Last weekend, we were thinking about the contrast between living according to the flesh or by fleshy desires, which leads to spiritual death, and instead living according uh, to the life-giving, chain-breaking, grave-liberating spirit who brings us life and hope in abundance. Sounds really good to live that kind of a life, doesn't it? And that's what's on offer to us. In conclusion, last weekend, Kay underscored for us the importance of pursuing what she described as being a spiritual mindset. In other words, making really wise choices with what we fill our minds with so that God, by His Spirit, has the greatest chance of working out His plans and His purposes in our lives. It was all about making the choice to live life on God's terms and with His empowerment. Now, all of that brings us really, really nicely to verse 12 of Romans chapter 8, where we discover yet another therefore. And I can already hear you saying, what's the therefore, therefore, in verse 12? Well, that's what we discover this morning. You see, the second half of Romans chapter 8 contains the most fantastic message of hope and of freedom and of assurance for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And Paul goes on to paint this amazing, this really vivid picture of what it means to live as children of God who are saved by Jesus and are led by the Spirit. And I've got three words for you today because I'm a proper Baptist. One is walking, the second is groaning, and the third is conquering. Imagine you're walking up a mountain for a moment. These will be uh, the words that you'll use. Walking, ah, isn't it really great to be in the mountain fresh air? As you start to go up the incline, oh, why is this so hard? And then conquering, yay, we've made it to the top. So if you like noises, ah, ah, yay, there you go. Sermon in three noises. So let's turn, if we can, to uh, Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read from verse 12. Uh, It begins with a therefore in the light of all that Paul has been saying in Romans chapter 7, in the light of all that he then goes on to say in verses 1 uh, to 11, we get to this therefore. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, you will put to death the misdeeds of the body and you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. But rather the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And through Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit testifies Himself with our spirit that we are God's children. 
Now read that again. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we're children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So walking, Paul begins by reminding believers, followers of Jesus Christ, that we are no longer slaves to our sinful nature. He's able to say with incredible confidence that we've been set free from the power of sin through Jesus. I wonder if that sounds like a familiar message to a message we've heard in recent weeks. If it does, it's because it is exactly the same message we've heard in previous weeks. But here Paul is just reinforcing it. In fact, he's escalating his argument to a whole another level. And in a sense, what he wants to say to us this morning is this, is that this is a truth that changes absolutely everything. If you can grasp this truth that I'm sharing with you this morning, this is a truth that will change the way you live, and it is a truth that will change the way that you see yourselves. Paul is saying to us, look, I only know of one antidote to what we might call the slavery mindset, and it is to experience God in this way. We need to be a people who are walking in the Spirit. In fact, he describes, I don't know if you noticed, it kind of jars as I read it, he describes such a walk as being an obligation. He says it's an obligation to walk in this way. It's a duty, it's a commitment if you've come to faith in Christ. That's what he says at the beginning of verse 12. Now, to walk in the Spirit is to have an encounter with the Father's love through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And Paul's message is so incredibly clear. He says to us this morning, look, if you're caught in what we might describe as being the performance trap, where you feel the need to earn the love of God, then there is only one way you can be set free. And it's what he describes in verse 15 as being an encounter with the spirit of adoption that can lead us to cry out, Abba, that can lead us to cry out, Daddy, in an act of worship that comes from the very center of our hearts. He says, only then, if you do all of that, will you be able to break free from what the Bible describes in Romans 8 as being the prison of spiritual slavery. And the difference for Paul is very clear, and it's very defined. He says it's the difference between have not and have. Verse 15 of Romans 8 says, for you have not received the spirit of slavery, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now, I know from my own life how easy it is to start living a life based on performance rather than living life out of a joy-filled basis of knowing my position before God. Performance sometimes drives us more than our knowledge of our position in Christ. But here's the thing, you will not find the word earn anywhere in the Scriptures in connection with coming or becoming a child of God. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his one and only son. You see, becoming a child of God is a gift. It's not a payment for your hard work, and it is certainly not a prize or a reward. It's a gift. Paul is saying here, look, because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross, because Jesus died, because Jesus conquered the grave, verse 15, you can now cry out from the very core of your being, not God, you're my master and I am your slave, would you judge me? But instead you can cry out, Abba, Father, not master, not boss, not ruler, not chief, but daddy. God chose to adopt me into his family. 
He chose me. God chose to make me his child. And if you're in Jesus this morning, if you've trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, you can say exactly the same thing. The God of the universe chose me to be his child. Wow. You see, contained in just this little chunk of Scripture is conclusive proof that Christianity is not supposed to be some kind of remote, aloof religion, but rather Christianity is supposed to be an intimate relationship with the Trinity, an intimate relationship with the three yet one creator God. In our text, we see that first of all, the Father chooses to adopt us into his family. We then see that he sends the spirit of his son, Jesus Christ, into our hearts. And then thirdly, we see the Holy Spirit makes it possible for us to know not only at a head level, but also at a heart level that we are children of God. And I know from my own walk of faith that the more I walk in what we might describe as being in step with the Spirit, the greater my assurance is that I'm adopted into God's family. And the more that I know I'm adopted into God's family, the more the fruit of the Spirit that Chloe was talking about seemed to be at work in my life, and the more like Jesus I start to become. In Romans chapter 8, the term spirit occurs 21 times. That's about once every two verses. Guess what the main theme of Romans chapter 8 is? You see, the Christian life is essentially life in the Spirit. It's a a life that's animated. It's a life that's sustained, directed, enriched by the Spirit. And perhaps the most important role of the Holy Spirit, amongst many others, is to give us the assurance that we are intimately connected to God because of Jesus. Verse 16 again, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are. The Spirit of God testifies with our spirit that we are, we are, we are, we are, we are children of God. You see, before anything else in this life, if I've come to faith in Jesus, then I'm a child of God. What security, what a promise. Now, it's really important this morning that we just don't quickly skim over this thought and move on to something else, because what Paul is saying here would have been profoundly shocking to his original hearers, especially those of a a Jewish persuasion. Do you ever find yourself just having the words kind of trip off your tongue? Yes, I'm a child of God. And then you just move on and don't really dwell on what you've just said. Well, to Paul's original hearers, so sacred was the name of the Lord in Jewish Orthodox tradition that they dare not even speak it out loud, believing that the name of God was an unutterable name. In fact, so sacred was the name Yahweh or Lord that the Jews would whisper it, um, just the consonants, not even the full, uh, the, the full name under their breath. And yet here is Paul saying, because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross, we can now confidently cry out from the core of our being, Abba, which quite literally means Daddy. That's what Jesus has made possible. No longer do the abbreviated name of God need to be be quietly whispered under the lips of our breath, but now we can actually speak to God with the most intimate name possible. We can come to him boldly as father, son, as father, daughter, daughter, father, son, father, in that kind of a way, and we can say to him, you are my daddy. Jim Packer, the the author and theologian, um, has written a brilliant book. It's called Knowing God. If you haven't read it, I commend it to you. And he's got the most amazing quote. It's a long quote, but it's worth hearing. It says this, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, then find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. 
if this is not the thought that promotes and controls their worship, their prayers, the whole of their outlook on life, then it means they don't really understand Christianity that well. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. And he finishes with this. Grab this. This is good for you today. Father is the Christian name of God, he says. Father is the Christian name for God. I am a child of God. It sounds good, doesn't it? And it sounds good because it is good. Paul is saying to us, if you've received the spirit of adoption by coming to faith in Jesus, then you can and you should have the knowledge of an intimate relationship with a heavenly Father who loves us and who cares for us. So what's the role of the Holy Spirit here, according to Paul? Well, the role of the Holy Spirit is to make the objective fact of our adoption as children of God a subjective reality in our experience. And you know, I know this so well from my own journey of faith, but I know this well from journeying with others, that one of the most effective strategies of Satan is to convince children of God that they are not children of God is to convince those of us who have become children of God that we somehow have to earn our salvation and work really hard to be in God's good books. And when we end up being deceived in that kind of a way, Paul speaks here in Romans 8 of being captured by the spirit of slavery and fear. It's a state of oppression. It's an imprisonment. And he's saying to us, look, if you find yourself in that place, the only way out of that place is to have an encounter with the spirit of adoption or to, to walk in the spirit, we might say. Verse 15 again, for you have not received the spirit of slavery, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby you can cry out, Daddy. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are, it's an objective fact, that we are children of God. But you know, it gets even better than that. In verse 17, he goes on to say, if we're children of God, then we're also co-heirs with Christ. Verse 17, we share in his, his inheritance, which is nothing less than all the riches of God, his grace and eternal life forevermore. Amen. Walking. Now, it would be very disingenuous of me, wouldn't it, to not point out that verse 17 is not all good news. I don't know if you spotted it. There's also some groaning. You see, in verse 17, there is the guaranteed promise of heaven, yes, but two, there is the promise of present suffering. We share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. But, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are worth nothing comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation awaits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. That in this hope, Paul says, we have been saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. Now, there's a whole another sermon in these verses about what it means to have a really good, sound theology of suffering. Now, you probably don't want me to preach that sermon this morning or 
Maybe you're wishing I was preaching that sermon and not the one I'm actually preaching, but we'll come to that another day. But for now, in summary, let's just recognize with Paul that life living on earth can sometimes be really tough. Life living on earth can be really, really difficult, and it can be challenging, and it can cause us to groan, if not inwardly, outwardly. I know that from my mum. Every time she bends over, she groans. But Paul is keen to say here, look, our groaning is not impure futility. It's groaning in hope, in the knowledge that our suffering is nothing but a blip compared to the future glory that awaits us in Christ Jesus. Now, you probably noticed this, that Paul compares groaning to the pains of childbirth. Now, let me speak for all women in the room. No woman in their right mind would subject themselves to the agony of labor, but they do it. Why is that? Because they know that the pain is worth it, and it's even bearable only because of the knowledge of the life which is coming afterwards. Can you see why Paul uses this as such an analogy? We groan, yes we do, but we groan in hope and expectation of the future that's ahead of us. And Paul is so keen, isn't he, in these verses to shift our attention towards the hope that actually transcends our suffering. Suffering can be hard, it can be very difficult. Paul's not trying to minimize that. But he's saying here our hope in suffering is not just a fleeting optimism, but it's a steadfast assurance that is rooted in God's promise. Even in suffering, I didn't read it, read verse 28, God is still working out his plans and his purposes, and he's working for our good. It doesn't always feel like that, even when we groan. So we're walking, isn't it lovely to be out and about? We groan, but also we conquer. As Paul wraps up Romans chapter 8, he makes the most awesome declaration of love. He's saying, here is a love that is beyond all measure. Paul here is speaking of an unwavering security. He's speaking of an unbreakable hope. And he's saying, all of this is yours, regardless of the challenges that you might face in this earthly body. Let's read on. Verse 31. Loads of questions. What shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one condemned? who condemns? The answer, no one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. More questions. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Knowing all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. And then he finishes by saying, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in the whole of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, my guess would be, if you've ever been to a few funerals in your time, then you will have heard these verses shared. I can almost guarantee it. Why? Because they are incredible truths that it's so comforting to preach at the funeral of somebody who we've lost. These words are words of incredible comfort to those of us who grieve. But actually, Paul didn't primarily pen these words for the dead or for the grieving, but rather he pens these words to encourage those and inspire those who are living. 
Now, the very end of Romans chapter 8 speaks for itself perfectly of the hope that we have in Jesus. And I really don't want to spoil these words by saying too much about it. But I do want to just point out a couple of things for us to spot from these verses. And the first is this. Would you notice that God is for us? He's not against us. Paul emphatically declares here that God is for us. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? Would you know the truth this morning that your heavenly father is your greatest advocate? In fact, he loves you so much and he's so for you that he gave the very best thing he had for you, which was his son. What a father. He's for you. He's not against you. But secondly, would you notice too that in Jesus, we are promised an overwhelming victory. We're conquerors. I love what Paul does here. It wasn't enough for him just to say, in Christ Jesus, we're conquerors. It's almost like he ran out of objectives. So he just said, uh, we're more than conquerors. We're more than. Couldn't he have thought of another word? No, instead he just says, we're not just conquerors. We're more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loves us. And he says, nothing because of that reason will ever be able to separate you from the love that you have in Jesus. Nothing. Now, to me, that sounds like watertight security eternally in a world that doesn't offer much security. And yet we have it in Christ Jesus because we're not just conquerors. We are more than conquerors. And then at the end of the passage, Paul finishes with this powerful reminder that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, the present, the future, nor anything else in the whole of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God. Isn't this such a great text? We're no longer slaves to sin, but we're children of God. That is who we are. And there's nothing that we can do today to earn our salvation. And if you're trying to earn it, stop. There's this amazing invitation to to walk in the Spirit. Yes, we groan, but we groan in expectant hope, knowing that any suffering we might go through is temporary, and knowing that God is working for our good even through those difficult things. The Spirit guides us and He leads us, He assures us with this promise that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, your past is settled. In Christ Jesus, your present is covered. And in Christ Jesus, your future is secured. Who is like the Lord, our God? He's strong to save. He's faithful in love. Because of Christ, my debt is paid, my victory is won, the Lord is my salvation. I want to invite our musicians to come and join us. We're going to, this morning, just respond together. I want to encourage us just to hold on to the promises of these verses. You see, Paul's invitation in Romans chapter 8 is to enter into an intimate relationship with God. I wonder how intimately you're feeling that relationship today. Do you feel like a son? Do you feel like a daughter? The invitation today is the Spirit equips us and resources us, as the Spirit assures us that we are children of God, is to walk in greater intimacy. We're going to sing a song which, in a sense, is a song of commitment. It's a song where we make an invitation to God to open up the eyes of our hearts so that we'll see him more, so that we'll know him more, so that we might walk in ever greater intimacy.
that we would see him, not necessarily with our physical eyes, but we will see him with our spiritual eyes. Let's remain seated. Let's sing together. Let's make this our prayer this morning. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see. 